Scripture reading for this morning comes from John chapter 7, verses 1 to 10. John 7, 1 to 10, I'm reading from the Legacy Standard Bible. To hear the word of the Lord. And after these things, Jesus was walking in Galilee, for he was unwilling to walk in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the feast of the Jews, the feast of booths, was near. Therefore his brothers said to him, leave here and go into Judea, so that your disciples also may see your works which you are doing. For no one does anything in secret when he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself publicly to the world. For not even his brothers were believing in him. So Jesus said to them, my time is not yet here, but your time is always here. The world cannot hate you, but it hates me because I bear witness about it, that its deeds are evil. Go up to the feast yourselves. I am not yet going up to this feast because my time has not yet been fulfilled. And having said these things to them, he stayed in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up to the feast, then he himself also went up, not publicly, but as in secret. This is the word of the Lord. May he add his blessing to the reading and the preaching of it. You may be seated. Would you pray with me as we seek to bow our hearts and open our minds to understand the word of God. May the Lord give us grace to do that. Father, it's, it's our prayer that as we come to your word, you would help us focus. Lord, help us recognize why we're here. I pray that anything that the enemy has been able to lodge into our hearts and minds on any issue this week where we are not thinking rightly or we are not thinking according to your will, whether it's on a, a matter or in relation to a person, in relation to world events, just different circumstances we're walking through, Lord, I, I pray that you would uh, remove the hooks of the enemy's intrusive suggestions so that they would no longer hang around in our minds. Give us grace, Lord. Renew our minds as we come to your word this morning. Help us walk according to your will. Help us worship you with sincerity and in truth. And we pray, Father, that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ would be lifted among us high, above all else, above everything and everyone else. Help us see Jesus this morning with greater clarity and greater illumination by your grace in the eyes of our hearts. Give us understanding, Lord. Lord, we do lift up Miller, May, Bradbury to you and we're so thankful, Lord, that in this fallen and corrupted world, you continue to provide precious gifts like newborn babies. Lord, what a joy and a delight it is to welcome a new life into the Bradbury family. And 
We thank you as the author of life for giving such a gift to that family and in whatever degree we get to enjoy her as well, uh, providing that gift to us. Lord, we pray that the Bradbury family would be faithful in pointing her back to you, helping her understand the truth of the gospel, showing her what it looks like and teaching her what it means to walk by faith in those truths. Lord, may she come to have the inheritance of the saints, that which is incorruptible and undefiled and that will not fade away, that which is being kept in heaven for those who are being guarded by your power through faith, for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last days. Lord, we know that you have worked that inheritance through the, the, salva- or the saving work of our Lord Jesus Christ and particularly through his resurrection from the dead. And we pray that Millie would come to know the power of the resurrection of Christ in her own soul. Deliver her, Lord, from her own fallenness and corrupt nature that she's received in Adam. Cause her to be born again at a young age, Lord. Spare her from having to walk through the cesspool of sin in the depth that many of us had to before you brought us to faith. Spare her of that, Lord. Give her a living and abundant hope and faith in you from an early age. May she know the blessing of not being able to tell when it was that you saved her. that she would know the blessing of being enveloped in an atmosphere of your presence and your truth from her earliest memories. We lift her up to you, Lord, and we pray that you would do your gracious work in her life and give us grace to minister to her in any way that we can as your people who are called to walk together here in this place. Lord, we ask for your mercy to be with us especially now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so last week we, well, this week we're coming back into John chapter 7. Last week we looked at some background information that um, is given to us in John chapter 7, verses 1 to 2. And that's where we find that the Jews were uh, increasing in their desire to kill Jesus. And the Feast of Tabernacles was coming up. And Jesus seemingly was at least putting on a posture of wanting to stay in Galilee. Otherwise, his brothers wouldn't have asked him, aren't you going to go up to the feast? Jesus was walking around in Galilee. Now, There's an issue there that I think his brothers are drawing to his attention, or at least trying to. The Feast of Tabernacles was coming up. The Jews were seeking to kill Jesus, and Jesus was staying in Galilee. Here's the issue. All faithful, God-fearing Jews were required to go up to the Feast of Tabernacles and present present themselves before the Lord for worship. So what is Jesus going to do? If he goes into Jerusalem, he's going to be confronted by the religious leadership that is seeking to put him to death. 
Is he going to present himself to the Lord, to God his Father, at this feast? Or is he going to skip out on that feast and be an unfaithful Jew and not keep the law of God and remain in Galilee? Well, we know the answer because we know the rest of the story. But his brothers were wondering this question, and I think for a specific reason. Well, that's where verse 3 picks up for us, focusing on this interaction between Jesus and his brothers that takes place uh, before Jesus goes to the Feast of Tabernacles. Verse 3 opens with a therefore, and do you know what a therefore is therefore? You ought to. Uh, A therefore is there because it connects whatever is following to what has just been said. So what has just been said is like setting the stage, and then the therefore comes in to introduce uh, that which is coming to the forefront or the foreground of our focus. What that means is simply that we are to understand that there is a connection between the situation Jesus is facing with the Jews in Jerusalem and the comments that Jesus' brothers are making to him in relation to that Feast of Tabernacles. There's a connection between the two. It is because the Feast of Tabernacles was near, and it is in light of the fact that the Jewish leadership was seeking to kill him, that Jesus' brothers urge him to go up to the feast in order to reveal himself in a public way in Jerusalem. Now the question is, why were they doing that? What was their motivation behind trying to get Jesus to go up to the feast, to be surrounded by those who are in authority, who want to put him to death? Why were they urging him to go up to this feast? Well, as you can guess, with many important questions and interpreting text, there are various opinions. And uh, with this one, there are some commentators that take their comments towards Jesus, their urging of him to go to the feast, as misguided zeal. That they were zealous for their brother, whom they had seen do miraculous wonders, to go display himself publicly in Jerusalem and to stop the mouths of those who were seeking to put him to death, to put them to shame in front of the entire gathered people of God in Jerusalem. Go put your power on display. Show them who you really are and shut their mouths. Be just a similar spirit of like John 6.15 where the crowd comes to Jesus and they're going to take him by force to make him their king, right? Well, some interpreters, some commentators believe that that's the same thing going on with his brothers. There's this zeal for Jesus to make himself known in a public way, and it's, it's a misguided zeal. Now, there are others who believe that his brothers are urging him to go up to Jerusalem as an expression of selfish desire on their part. That is, it's not really zeal about Jesus, it's a self-centered zeal for what they can gain by their brother being publicly recognized as the miracle worker, Jesus. So John Piper would be an example of one who interprets this passage that way. I just use his name because he's popular and familiar to many people here in this room. 
In other words, they, they interpret this as his brothers wanting Jesus to go show himself off to the crowd, to go wow them and astound the Jews in Jerusalem, and to seek the glory of men so that they can ride in on his coattails and get some glory for themselves. You know how it is with people who think they're more important than they are and can't seem to get the recognition that they want. They'll very often attach themselves to someone who is seemingly more important than themselves and does get the recognition of being someone important. They'll latch onto them and kind of skate in into that glory on the uh, skirt in on the coattails of the more important person. Well, in other words, they're self-seeking and they're filled with selfish ambition. And that's why they want Jesus to go up to the feast. Well, not to be contrarian, but in my study of this passage, it seems to me, and I'm not alone in this, so don't think this is Seth's weird interpretation of this passage. It seems to me that this urging of Jesus to go up to Jerusalem is coming from something different. They're not expressing, in other words, I don't think they're expressing an innocent, though misguided, desire for Jesus to be recognized. I think what's happening here is an outright expression of opposition and hostility against him. In other words, it seems as though in the context, his brothers are trying to get him to go to Jerusalem, uh, basically putting a challenge before him, testing him, tempting him, trying him. That in the face of opposition, will he not go show himself off to be who he is, at least who he claims himself to be? If he truly is who he claims himself to be, then go prove it to everyone in Jerusalem. Show them who you are, and they will no longer want to kill you. If he is who he claims to be, then go to Jerusalem and prove it. Now, as we're going to see next week, Jesus says to them, my time to do that has not yet come. Now that tells us there is a time when Jesus is going to publicly put his glory on display in a way that will wow people. And we know that that day is coming. That is the day of his second coming, his return, when he comes to decimate his enemies and judge them in righteousness and pour out upon them what Revelation calls the wrath of the Lamb, while at the same time delivering his people and allowing them to be in awe and wonder at the glory of his coming. 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. That day is coming, but that day is not yet. And so, as I hope that I'm going to show you this morning, I don't think, and it doesn't seem in the context that this is misguided zeal that is speaking in his brother's comments. I don't think that this is self-seeking ambition. It seems more so to be faithless antagonism. And so what I want to do is try to show that from the context of these verses this morning, that what we see, at least in verses 3 to 5, is in essence a challenge of unbelief. A challenge of unbelief. And I want to look at this under three main points and then end on two points of application. All right? So point number one, 
We notice in this, this is related. This is important. Historically important. You notice in verse 3 that verse 3 clearly identifies a group of people as Jesus' brothers. Jesus' brothers. Now there is disagreement in church history about how to understand who that is talking about. Augustine and others like the Roman Catholic Church and even some Protestant commentators in the past, such as John Gill, who would be a Reformed Baptist from the 1700s, they say that this is not talking about what we would think of as brothers. This is uh, more, uh, rather than that, this is referring to Jesus' extended family members like cousins or uncles, people like that. It's, in other words, it's talking about his relatives, not his brothers, as we would think of them. Now, for Catholics and for Augustine, I guess Catholics following Augustine and others like him, they would, the reason why they would hold to that is because they believe in the perpetual virginity of Mary. Well, Augustine didn't believe in that, but the Roman Catholic Church does believe in that. And they draw that from an idea that Augustine presented and others in early church history that they, that they held to, that after bearing the God-man, Mary's womb was sanctified and became holy, and therefore was no longer, it was no longer proper for her to give birth to that which was merely mortal. Right? So it'd be like Augustine actually uses the illustration of Jesus' sepul- sepul- sepulcher, right? his grave, that no one had laid in it before he entered into it, and no one laid in it after he entered into or came out of it, because it was holy. Right? So he drew a, a parallel between that and Mary's womb. No one had entered her womb prior to the conception of Jesus Christ, and no one was produced from her womb after Jesus Christ came forth. The Theotokos bore forth, bore forth God, the God-man, the God-bearer is that, that, that word. And so Augustine could say she could not have conceived anything mortal after conceiving of one who was so holy. But you know, in Scripture, uh, it seems very clear that Scripture testifies in other places that Jesus did, in fact, have what we would consider to be brothers. In reality, they would be half-brothers because they would be born of Mary, right? And Jesus was not born of Joseph, so they would be half-brothers. Matthew chapter 13, verse 55 actually identifies them for us. It gives us their names. Jesus had four brothers, Joseph, James, Simon, and Judas. Judas we know as Jude. Uh, He wrote the book of Jude. In uh, Galatians chapter 1, verse 19, Paul refers to James as the Lord's brother. And that's talking about James, who was considered at that time to be a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. It's not talking about James, the brother of John, sons of Zebedee. It's talking about James, the Lord's brother. Or 1 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 5. Again, Paul refers to the brothers of our Lord who took along with them into ministry, believing wives, with the rest of the apostles. So much for the celibacy of the priesthood. Clearly, in Scripture, 
Jesus had what we would consider to be brothers. The exact same word is used to describe these brothers of our Lord as the word that is used to describe uh, John, the brother of James. It's the exact same construction, the exact same word. Clearly, the scriptures identify four men to be the brothers of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, one of the objections to, to this argument is that if Jesus had brothers, then why at the cross did he entrust his mother into the hands of John, his disciple, who was not his brother? Because according to the law of God, his physical brothers would have had the responsibility of caring for his mother, wouldn't they? So why did he uh, skip over them and entrust the care and well-being of his mother into the hands of his apostle, his disciple John? Well, I think the answer to that is very simple, and it doesn't need to be complicated. Amen? We like simple. I try to be simple. No, I don't succeed at that very often, but I try to be simple. I think the answer is simple. Because Jesus, the reason Jesus entrusted his mother into the hands of John, his disciple, was because Jesus counted those who were part of his spiritual family to be truer family to him than his blood relatives who were not believing. You remember in Mark 3.35 when his mother and brothers had come to see him as he was teaching a crowd. The crowd let him know, uh, Lord, your mother and your brothers are outside. They want to see you. And Jesus responds back to them, wait a who are my mother and my brothers? Are they not those who do the will of God? And right there, Jesus draws this distinction, right, between his blood relatives and those who are following him in sincere faith, seeking to do the will of his Father. And one of those groups he considers to be his family, and the other of those groups he does not, at least in this context. That shows us the significance and the importance that Jesus held for his spiritual family over and above his blood relatives. Now, that's very applicable to us in our own day. And I, I, don't know that, I don't know if you know this. I mean to be condescending. Look around at each other right now. Are you more willing to do for the person to your right things that you would normally do for your family, blood relatives? Are you more willing to do for them things that you would normally only do for blood relatives than you are willing to do for your blood relatives? Are you willing to sacrifice more for your brothers and sisters in Christ than you are willing to sacrifice for your brothers and sisters by birth? If we're going to follow our Lord's example, we have to have a very high view of one another, don't we? You know, part of our problem, the reason why there's so much factionalism among us and, and issues of argument and, and backbiting and slander and, and just disunity in the church of Christ is that we don't actually recognize how important we are supposed to be to one another. You know, and the reason for that is because we don't spend enough time in the word of God and in prayer and in praying for our own souls and the souls of our brothers and sisters. How much time did you spend praying this week for the people in this church that you fellowship with? The people that you covenant to be one body with. How much time did you spend laboring on their behalf in the presence of God? That was not spoken with a paddle. 
okay? I had a prince, I, I, don't, know if, I don't know if this happened to any of you, but the last spanking that I got was when I was 17 years old. <laughs> and you want to know who did that? My senior year in high school, and it was one of my principals. I love where I grew up. <laughs> I do. I do. He had this paddle, it was about that long, full of holes. No wind resistance. Man, you were getting the full force of that paddle. I praise God for that. I do. Anyway, my comments to you are not supposed to be a paddle across your backside or your face, two by four across the face or anything. It's, it's supposed to be an urging. Are, are you living up to the demands that God has of you in the scriptures? Are you following your Lord in the way that you view your brothers and sisters in the church? Because that's how he views your brothers and sisters in the church. If you're going to be like him, you have to view them the same way. Well, I think that's the reason why Jesus entrusted his mother, who seems to have been a believer at the cross. I think that's why he entrusts the care of his mother into the hands of his disciple, rather than entrusting her into the hands of his physical half-brothers, because they were not yet believing. And he trusted John to take care of her more than he trusted his unbelieving siblings to take care of her. So this interaction is taking place between Jesus and his half-brothers. Second main point this morning here is uh, we see in verses 3 and 4 what it was that his brothers wanted him to do. What was it that his brothers wanted him to do? It says in verse 3 that his brothers were calling upon him to depart from here and go up into Judea. And then in verse 4, you see them say, go show yourself to the world. So, first of all, in light of the upcoming feast and the fact that the religious leaders in Jerusalem were wanting to kill him, they say to him, leave from here, flee away from Galilee, and that is, stop wasting your time around here and go up to Jerusalem. Go show yourself to the world up there. See, his brothers knew that Jesus was claiming to be an important religious figure. He was calling upon people to believe in him, to follow him in faith if they were going to be faithful to God. They had to be his disciples. They knew what he was calling upon people to do. And they also knew that the center of all religious life for the people of God was at this time not the region of Galilee. Galilee was seen as an unimportant, obscure, boondocks, backwater kind of place. Just podunk place. I mean, that's podunkville. You just go up there to disappear and to go hang out with the people who are not important. It's called Galilee of the Gentiles, right? To to show the disdain that the Jews had towards that region. And yet here Jesus is claiming to be the, the Messiah of the Jews, calling upon the Jews to believe in him, and yet spending all of his time in Galilee of Gentiles? Jerusalem was where he needed to go. And especially now, because who else is going to be at Jerusalem? It's the time of the feast. Everyone who is a God-fearer, everyone who is a Jew of Jews is going to be at that feast. And in fact, you may remember last week I said that Josephus, the Jewish historian from the first century, he was a contemporary of the events 
that are recorded for us in the New Testament. He saw the destruction of Jerusalem and wrote about it after it happened. He chronicled everything that took place. Josephus said that the Feast of the Tabernacles was the most popular feast among the Jewish people. So everyone, everyone's going to be up in Jerusalem. Therefore, what is Jesus doing around Galilee? He needs to go up to Jerusalem where everyone else is. Well, that's what they were calling him to do. Go up to Jerusalem. Go show yourself to everyone. So that's the second point. What about the third point for this morning? That's what they wanted him to do. But the third point, why did they want him to do it? That's what we're really focusing on for the rest of our time. Why did they want him to go up to Jerusalem? Well, I've already said some of that. I think it's because that's where the people were going to be. But what was their motivation for wanting him to go? In these verses, in verses 3 and 5 of John chapter 7, we have two different kinds of answers to that question. So number one, we see the stated reasons for why they want him to go to Jerusalem. The stated reasons for why they want him to go to Jerusalem. That's in verses 3 and 4. Verse 3, they say, depart from here and go away to Judea so that your disciples may behold the works that you're doing. Now, what disciples are they talking about? It seems that they're probably referring to the disciples that were being made in John chapter 4, verse 1, where it says that Jesus and his disciples, or at least his disciples, were baptizing more disciples than John the Baptist was. And that was in the area of Judea. And then after that, he goes through Samaria and heads on up to Galilee. Right, so probably they're referring to the disciples in the lands of Judea that John chapter 4, verse 1 is referring to. It seems like a good desire. Right? We're talking about those who at the feast are going to be subject to mass confusion among the crowd that is gathered in Jerusalem. The crowd has no idea what to make of Jesus. They're arguing with one another about it, and the disciples are going to be exposed to that kind of argumentation. Maybe sowing seeds of doubt in their hearts and in their minds. And then not to mention the impact of being silenced by fear over what the Jewish leaders might do to them if they were openly confessing to be followers of Jesus. Right? Because it says in, in this chapter of John chapter 7 that the Jews were seeking to kill Jesus. If they were seeking to kill Jesus, what would they be willing to do with those who are following Jesus? So his brothers seemed to be challenging him to go up to the feast in order to let his disciples see his works. That is, to let his disciples be encouraged, to strengthen them, right? Prove to your disciples who you are so that they're not taken uh, by all the bait of confusion and they're not succumbing to the fear of denouncing you and refusing to follow after you. And maybe we can even hear in this a reference to what just took place in John 6. What happened in John 6? It opens with thousands of disciples, and it closes with how many? <laughs> Twelve. And one of them is the devil. Jesus, you don't want your disciples down in Judea to leave and depart from you too, do you? Go to Jerusalem and show yourself to them and strengthen their faith in you. Isn't that what a good rabbi would do for those who are following him? It seems like a pious desire. 
And then you have in verse 4 another stated reason. So verse 3 is one stated reason. Go show yourself to your disciples. Go do this in their presence. And then verse 4 is another stated reason. No one does anything in secret who also seeks to be known in the open. If you do these things, reveal yourself to the world. Definitely a true statement, right? If you want people to recognize you and you want to gain a following for yourself, then you don't spend your time doing all your miracle working in secret. You go out in the public. You go show people who you are and what you can do. That's how you gain a following, right? In our day, they'd be telling them to go get a Facebook account and Twitter thing and to have a social media presence and make sure your YouTube channel's flashy and, and send out some flyers and ask people what they want you to do for your church service. Get as many people as you can. Show them who you are and go gain a following. If you, now, if you do these things here in Galilee, then go somewhere where you can get more bang for your buck. You're already doing these miracles. So go do them in, in Jerusalem. Get more of a following for yourself. And that makes sense, right? At least from one perspective, at one level, that makes sense. So his brothers are urging him to stop doing these things in secret and to go show himself openly to the world. I came across some comments from a reformer that I wanted to include in the sermon today, <laughs> not because it adds to anything I've already said, but just because I wanted to say his name. So I confess that to you, I'm sorry. But I came across some comments by, from a reformer known as Johannes, ready? Ocolampadius. Ocolampadius. Does that sound good? Yeah, yeah. Ocolampadius. His real name is actually Husgen, or Husgen, or however you say that in Swiss German. German. But uh, Ocolampadius means house light. House light. Um, that's, what, that's a name he took to himself, or at least a name that he became known by. But he writes, those who want to appear glorious in the world take great care in every way to have their works made public, making sure that they are seen by everyone. Persons who pursue glory certainly do not look for hiding places and obscurity, but they must appear in the light of day and do something worthy of fame in order to be celebrated. And so the statement of his brothers amounts to this. Those who seek to be celebrated must do these things. In other words, must do these things out in the open. Well, is that what Jesus was after? Was he after being celebrated by the masses? That's not what he was after. He wasn't after the glory of men. He was after the glory of his father. And uh, in some ways, their comments to Jesus make logical sense in our minds, but their stated reasons are not the real reasons why they were urging him to go up to Jerusalem. The real reason or the true reason is seen in verse 5. In verse 5, what verse 5 tells us shows us that the statements that were made in verses 3 and 4 were nothing more than faithless antagonism clothed in the false robes of piety. Trying to give him good reasons on the outside to go up to Jerusalem, all the while in their hearts harboring animosity towards him. 
Let me see if I can show you that. In verse 5, they were urging him to, it's, uh, the Apostle John comments on why they were urging him to go up to Jerusalem, and it was because not even his brothers were believing in him. Now here, we're told very straightforwardly the reason or the underlying motive behind their appeals for Jesus to go show himself off to the world. Their underlying motive was unbelief. In other words, their appeal had nothing to do with the well-being or encouragement of his disciples. Their appeal had nothing to do with wanting to see Jesus show himself off to the world and prove to the world who he really is. No, their appeal was coming from a heart of unbelief. From a desire to see him do something to prove himself that was rising out of convictions of doubt. Not believing the truth that he had been declaring of himself, but leveling these comments to him to test him and to get him to go prove himself to everybody else. Maybe there's even a thought here that the real reason he wanted to stay in Galilee and in obscurity was because he couldn't prove who he was to the religious leaders in Jerusalem. Maybe that's why they want to kill him. So if you are who you say you are, then go down to Jerusalem and show everybody. Don't be here in the secret. And you can see there's, there's a lot of significance, I think, in verse 4. In the if of verse 4. Where he says, if, they say to him, if you do these things, then don't stick around here in Galilee doing them. Go reveal yourself to the world. You know, that if, you can hear in their words another familiar voice, can't you? If, if you do these things, then go show yourself to the world. Whose voice do you hear in that? It sounds much like the voice of his adversary, the devil. Matthew chapter 4, verse 3, the very beginning of his temptations after entering into ministry and being filled with the Spirit... The devil comes to him saying, if you are the son of God, then go turn this, turn this stone into bread. Again, Matthew chapter 4, verse 6, if you are the son of God, throw yourself down from here and his angels will catch you. Or even the Pharisees at the cross, right? The same kind of speculative questioning this temptation of Jesus that marked the beginning of his ministry also marks the end of his ministry. When he's reached the climax and the summit of all that he came to do, when he's being crucified on the cross to save his people from their sins, the Pharisees are leveling accusations and abuse to him. And they're saying, if you are the Son of God, then come down off the cross and we'll believe in you. It's that simple. If you're truly the Messiah, the Messiah doesn't die. So come off the cross and show us. And then we'll believe in you. Right? <laughs> it's like a, well, no, it's not quite a one-to-one -one parallel. The, uh, the test for testing if someone was a witch in the past. Throw them in the water. <laughs> if they drown, they're not a witch. If they come out of the water weighted down, you know, tied up and weighted down. If they come out of the water, then they are a witch. <laughs> anyway, 
Here these Pharisees are saying, Matthew 27, 40, if you are the son of God, then come down from the cross. Matthew 27, 42, if you are the king of Israel, if he is the king of Israel, then let him come down from the cross and we will believe in him. Over and over again, Christ was being tested and tempted and tried and challenged by unbelievers with a heart of unbelief, speculative hearts that were seeking to entrap him and find reasons not to believe in him. If you are who you say you are, then assert yourself in some miraculous way and prove it, and then we will believe in you. Now, all of that was simply manifesting the same Spirit of doubt that was sown into the hearts of humanity in the very beginning in the Garden of Eden. Has God truly said? Every sin is a result of doubting what God has said. Every act of unbelief is a result of of an unbelieving heart that is set in opposition to the truth that God is revealing of himself. Here we see that same thing manifesting here, except there's a difference. We hear the same voice in this scene as the adversary, but where is that voice coming from? His brothers. In other words, the influence of the enemy was manifesting in the members of his own household. You know, it's always easier to handle opposition and even persecution when it comes from someone outside. A stranger, a neighbor, even a friend. It's easier to accept the criticism and opposition and even persecution of someone who is outside. But when it comes from within the walls of your own household, that comes with a point on it that's, that's far more difficult to stomach. Being betrayed by a friend is even easier than experiencing the difficulty of having your own family members turn against you. Some of you know what that's like. I would say if if we are faithful Christians in this room and we are faithfully representing Christ the way we ought to, then all of us know what this is like to some degree. Well, here Jesus is being betrayed by members of his own household who seem to be speaking to him with the voice of his greatest adversary, the devil. I want to draw just two applications from that as we come to an end. Number one, and this is more general, I'll get to the more specific one in a moment. This expression of his brother's unbelief illustrates the truth of John 1.13 very clearly. John 1.13, it tells us that No one becomes a child of God or becomes a believer in Christ by the will of the flesh, nor by the will of man, nor by being born of blood. No one becomes a child of God by birth, physical birth. Surely, if if, if that were the case, then Jesus' own brothers, those who were born to his mother, would have been born believers. But it takes a much mightier act and an infinitely more powerful work to make a person 
a true child of God than it does to make someone a child of parents. Birth is a miracle. It's, uh, uh, the um, Conception is a miracle. It's a miracle of God creating life in the womb, bringing two things together to, in, order, in order to form a unique life with its own DNA and its own genetic makeup and sequencing, its own heart, its own, uh, its own thoughts, its own uh, muscular system and skeletal system, and it's, it's its own person. That's a miracle of God weaving that little one together in the womb of its mother, and that's why we must always stand against atrocities like the murder of the unborn, right? It's not about women's rights. It's about the rights of the one who's in the womb, right? Amen. So that's a miracle, but it takes a far greater miracle to turn someone who was born physically into a spiritual child of God. It takes being born again. Now, there's a valuable lesson there. and I don't want to linger on this, but kids, I want, you, I want all the kids, kids to look at me. Let me see those pretty little eyes. Hey, hey, B, how are you doing? Where's Rowan? Never mind. I'll ask later. <laughs> All the little children, listen to me. You know what I had someone tell me one time? I had someone tell me that they were going to go to heaven and they, that they were a child of God because their daddy was a pastor. Now, this person lived a, a, a really bad life, not a life that was pleasing to God at all, not a life that was wanting to follow Jesus but this person was absolutely serious in believing that because her daddy was a pastor, she was going to go to heaven. Do you think there's something wrong with that? Does anyone get into heaven because their parents believe in God? No. Each one of us have to come to know God for ourselves. We have to come to know Jesus Christ for ourselves. We don't get into heaven because our parents are believers in Christ and are going to go to heaven. We're not Christians merely because we were born into a Christian household. We're not even Christians simply because our parents read us the Bible and family devotions and sing hymns to us and help us memorize scripture. None of that actually saves us in and of itself. The only way we're saved is if we have true faith in Jesus Christ. You must be born again not just born. Amen? So children, don't think that you're saved because you're born to a Christian family. You know, I've got a good friend who tells me that God doesn't have grandchildren. He only has children. Nobody becomes a believer simply because their parents are believers. That's a valuable lesson that we can all take to heart. Now, a second point of application and this is just a little bit longer here. Second point of application. What we see in relation to Christ's life ought to give us a clue as to what we will experience in our own lives if we are followers of Christ. Christ's disciples should not be surprised when we experience the same kind of opposition in our families that our Lord experienced. Jesus warned us in Matthew 10, verses 34 to 36, that this would, in fact, be the case. 
Matthew 10, 34, Jesus says, Do not think that I came to bring peace on the earth. I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I came to set a man against his father, and a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law, and a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. Now he's quoting there from Micah chapter 7, verse 6, but this was shocking to me the first time I read these verses. I think I was in high school. Just, I'd just been saved, carried my Bible with me everywhere. I, I even wasn't paying attention in Spanish class because I was too busy reading what really mattered, which was the Word of God. Amen? Si. Es muy importante. Mi Biblia. Actually, I regretted that uh, years later, not learning Spanish well, but... I remember reading these verses, it had to have been in high school, and it shocked me that Jesus would say, I didn't come to bring peace between everyone right now. What? What? You didn't come to bring peace, but you came to bring a sword? You came, in other words, you came to bring division, and and in a sense, you came to bring warfare between people? That's what swords are used for. They're for fighting battles. For for determining which side is against the other, right? And which side's going to win. Jesus says, I've not come to bring peace. I've come to bring a sword, an instrument of war, an instrument that will create division. And as a result of what I have come to do, a man's enemies will be the members of his own household. This is why... Jesus is history's most polarizing figure. And he continues to divide people today. You know, Jesus spoke these words out of his own experience, didn't he? We've seen that in John 7, but what about Mark chapter 3, verse 21? Where it says that his own people, his own relatives, heard about what he was doing in his ministry in Galilee, and they went out to take custody of him because they were saying to one another, he has lost his senses. Now, who specifically is that talking about? Well, we learn in verse 31 of Mark chapter 3 who that's talking about. Who were his own people who said he's out of his mind? Well, verse 31 tells us it was his mother and his brothers who arrived at the place where he was ministering in order to take him away. His mother and his brothers thought that he had lost his marbles. And they were going to go grab him and help him find them. It's interesting, this was actually prophesied as a feature of the kind of suffering that the Messiah would experience when he came. There's a messianic psalm, Psalm 69. And verse 8 of that psalm says, I have become estranged from my brothers and an alien to my mother's sons. Notice there, it doesn't say my father's sons. Hmm. Messianic. Wow, the Lord knew what he was talking about hundreds of years before Jesus actually came. Prophesying about what his life would be like. It was prophesied that the Messiah would experience opposition in his own home. And he tells his people that the same thing is going to happen to his followers. John 15, verse 20, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, what are they going to do to his followers? If they persecuted me, they're going to persecute you. 
Did they persecute Jesus? Yes, they did. So what does that mean in relation to what we should expect? They persecuted him, then we know they will persecute those who follow him. They will persecute us as we follow him. Beloved, this must be the price that we are willing to pay if we are going to be disciples of Christ. If we are not willing to pay this price, Jesus says, you cannot be my disciple. I'm not going to sugarcoat this. Matthew chapter 10, verse 37, Jesus says, after saying a man's enemies will be those of his own household, he says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. He who loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. If you are halted in your Christianity out of a fear of what your husband, your wife, your children, your mom, your dad, your uncles, your aunts, or anyone else in your family is going to think about it, then you are not worthy to be Jesus' disciple. That is not me saying that. That is Jesus saying that. Now, I recognize and I feel very much how difficult it is when the gospel creates division in the family. Someone gets saved, gets born again of the Holy Spirit, and realizes that Jesus Christ is no longer that fairy tale figure that they're trying to believe in anymore, but He's real. He's Lord of glory, and He's been manifest to their heart, and they now know more surely than they know anything else that Jesus Christ is Lord, and that He is Savior, and no one gets to the Father except through Him. They've come to recognize that with the fullness of conviction by the ministry of the Spirit in their hearts. And what do they begin to do? They begin to share that truth, that reality with those that they love most. They begin sharing that truth with their brothers, their sisters, their mom, their dad, their grandma, their grandpa. They begin telling them about Jesus. They start making a stand in the family. They no longer want to get drunk and be riotous and and do all the crazy worldly things that the family does when they get together. They, all of a sudden, they're different. They want to live a holy life. They want to live in fellowship with the Lord. And they begin living that way in the context of their family. And how does their family respond? Who, does, who is this guy? Come on, this is Ricky. Don't you remember Ricky? Ricky, come on, man. We used to do all these things together, right? Well, you don't don't want to drink with us anymore? What, you don't want to go do these other things with us anymore? Who do you think you are? Are you you, you better than us now? Somehow somehow holier than thou? You you think you're, you're judging us now. In reality, what's happening is that a righteous and holy life is reflecting upon the corruption of their own lives, and they're troubled by it. But they have to put a point. They've got to put a position of blame to this feeling that they're having. They have to identify something that they can blame that is not themselves because at the very heart of the autonomous heart of man, at the very core of the autonomous heart of man is a desire for self-preservation and self-glorification. You do not dare tell me that something is wrong with me. If there's something wrong with me, it's someone else's fault. Modern psychology, I just told you why you never need to go to a modern psychologist and a worldly psychologist ever again. Mm -hmm. 
They begin feeling that condemnation because the life of the believer in their household is now reflecting upon the badness of their own lives. And they only know how to respond to that in one way. The only thing that has changed is you. So you must be the problem. Well, Jesus said, and he warned his followers, his gospel will create division. Therefore, we should not be surprised when standing in his gospel and standing for the cause of his gospel creates division in our households. In fact, we should be surprised and we should be concerned when it doesn't create division in our household. Now, I'm not talking about if your whole family gets born again. Praise the Lord. That's an exception. That is a rare exception, which is why the New Testament speaks about whole households being baptized in faith in Christ. It only mentions that a number, a handful of times, and that's because that's a rare experience. For most of us, we're going to feel the opposition of, the, of our family members when we, when we seek to live out a faithful life of discipleship in Christ. All right. I've kept you guys really late. Let me end on one point here, okay? Yes, we're going to have opposition in our families. Jesus said we've got to be willing to pay that price if we're going to be his disciples. But I want to point out something here just really quick. There is hope in the face of such a hard reality. Scripture tells us that even Jesus' mother and his brothers became believers. Did you know that? Acts chapter 1, verse 14, among the 120 disciples that are together in the upper room praying, there was Mary, the mother of Jesus, and his brothers. Isn't that awesome? Here they are, John chapter 7, absolute unbelievers in opposition to him, antagonistic against him. And yet here in Acts chapter 1, there they are devoting themselves to prayer in Jesus' name and waiting on the gift of the Spirit of God. Jude 1 verse 1, his brother Jude or Judas, he wrote the book of Jude. His brother James was eventually considered to be a pillar in the church in Jerusalem. 1 Corinthians 9.5 seems to tell us that most, if not all, of his brothers were set apart for gospel ministry alongside the apostles. Here's my point. That ought to give each of us comfort and encouragement as we think about our own loved ones who are still unbelievers. We are nowhere promised by God that he definitely will save all of our family members, but we are given proof that God can and often does save family members. He's done it in the past. There's nothing that will stop him from doing it in the present, if that is his will. So don't lose heart, brothers and sisters, don't lose heart. Some of you are dealing with very difficult situations in your family. Transgender issues, homosexual issues, just issues of hatred and animosity towards God, just indifference towards the Lord. You're dealing with very difficult issues. Beloved, don't lose heart. Don't stop praying for your unbelieving family members. You don't know if the Lord will take those prayers and inflame them and cause those family members to be born again by some means. 
Don't stop seeking opportunities to minister the truth of the gospel to them, even if you've done it a thousand times in the past and they've rejected it a thousand times already. Keep seeking opportunities. Believe that God can use your imperfect and seemingly insignificant efforts to cause his gospel to take root in that person's heart. Galatians chapter 6, verse 9. Don't let us lose heart in doing good, for in due time we will reap a harvest if we don't grow weary. Beloved, don't grow weary in the fight. Be faithful to Christ and keep being faithful until he brings in the harvest. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for your grace that's kept us today. Thank you for your word. Thank you for the patience of your people. Thank you for ministering to our hearts with your truth. Lord, if there are unbelievers among us, we do lift them up to you and pray that you would save them. That you would make their lives utterly miserable until their hearts are grabbed hold of by the good news of Jesus Christ, Lord and Savior. I pray for your people that you would give them grace to live their lives for your glory to count the cost and to be willing to pay it in order to be faithful in their service to you. Give them joy in every step they take for the sake of your name, Lord. Minister to them with power by your Holy Spirit. Accompanying the, accompany them in the sojourning. Give them the joy of hope, knowing that glory is coming. We pray this in Jesus' name, Father. Amen. Now hear a benediction from 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. Uh, verses 11 and 12, in light of the glorious appearing of Christ, when we will all see him and marvel at him at his coming, Paul says, to this end, we also pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every good pleasure for goodness and the work of faith with power so that the name of our Lord Jesus will be glorified in you and you in him according to the grace of our God in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, may you make it happen. May you work in us all that is pleasing in your sight and cause your son to be glorified in us today and every day until we come back together again. We ask this grace and blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. May you go in peace.